If you would take out your Bible, um, or turn on your Bible, or swipe open your Bible, however you get there, Mark chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 9 through 13 today, so just four verses, and you might sit there and think, four verses, how long could Pastor Eric go on four verses? You'd be surprised. Yeah, you're going to get... You're going to get your money's worth. I'm, I'm here for you. Yeah, you know. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I, uh, I think of Jesus' words. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, Lord, we live in a world of lies and deceptions and distortions and confusion. Um, but we tether back to your word, your revelation, the revelation of yourself and your redemptive plan. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your triune and concerted work in our salvation. And may we just bask in your nature uh, this morning as we see how you revealed yourself in your word. Spirit, be our teacher and guide now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, you all said long. A lot of you said long, by the way. I noticed that. Mental note. I've got a little bit of a complex going here. This past week, I uh, got an email from one of our local schools, probably along with a lot of you, that said that they're really having difficulty finding substitute teachers. And they were looking for help from parents. And uh, I got to thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I have Fridays off and maybe, I don't know, once or twice a month or something like that, I, I could help out. Maybe I could help out. And, um, and so I got thinking about that. And then they started dangling a $1,000 bonus out there if you signed up before the end of September. And I thought, wow, $1,000, that sounds like a new fly rod or firearm to me. You know, that's all right. So I actually started the process of filling out, to be, or filling out an application to be a substitute teacher. <laughs> well, hang in there. Your song may change. I started, but I did not finish. After about 30 minutes of working on the application, uh, I began to realize, I think I might know some of the reasons there's a shortage. Here was my experience. First of all, they wanted college transcripts. So I'd have to send away for three different schools to get my college transcripts and pay for those. And then they wanted a $45 fingerprinting fee, and I'd have to go down and do that, not to mention a subsequent training. And then they wanted three professional references who could not be my friend, a family member, and had to be a supervisor. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know anybody that fits that category. So I thought, I'll call the district office and see... Maybe there's some latitude on how you fill this out. So we got talking about that. And then I said, hey, while I've got you on the phone, I want to ask you about this $1,000 bonus. And she said, well, actually, here's the thing. Here's the thing. A little fine print. Uh, you have to serve five consecutive days as a substitute in order to qualify for the bonus. And I thought, okay, I don't have this kind of time. <laughs> and I think I know what might be part of the problem in finding substitute teachers. So I bring this up not just to complain or rant, um, although I'm perfectly capable of doing just that. I'm entering that season in my life where ranting is like a hobby. And, um, but I bring it up because I think it's an interesting way of thinking about how we assess a person's qualification for a particular role. And there's a way that you can do this sort of externally, 
right? As the Fairbanks North Star Borough was looking, they wanted references, application, transcripts, fingerprinting to see if I've participated in an insurrection or something like this. You can do this through external viewing or you can do it through internal. A person's nature, their character, their, their aptitude. And it seems to me that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke really try to show the qualifications of Jesus as the Messiah from the external side of things, right? They look at genealogies and prophecies, angelic references, and even some other personal endorsements like Simeon and Anna and the Magi. They highlight the external uh, or outward sort of qualifications of Jesus as Messiah. But Mark is different. He's less concerned about these external marks, and he's more concerned about the person and the nature of Jesus to perform the role. And we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, he highlights Jesus' authority in his words and then substantiated in the authority of his deeds. But he seems to focus more on the internal nature of Jesus. Last week, we, Jesus was introduced, really, in, in the Gospel of Mark as as part of God's long-standing redemptive plan, uh, announced by Isaiah, identified by John the Baptist. And this week, our passage continues with the introduction of Jesus, but by revealing to us his dual nature, not so much external qualifications, but internal qualifications, a look at his, his inherent being. And so in your, in your handout, you've got a box right at the top there, that I want to highlight sort of the main point that we're going to see this morning. This passage shows us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he is fully divine, and that he added humanity to his deity. Fully human, fully divine. And you might be sitting there and thinking, well, what's the implication of that? Why does that matter? Why, why is that significant? And that's a good question. For Jesus to be the Messiah one that takes away the sin of the world and that reconciles sinful mankind to a holy God. He has to be both human and divine. In order to perform that function, he cannot merely be one or the other. It's his deity that makes his sacrifice one of infinite worth to the Father. And it's his humanity that allows him to truly act as our representative. So with that in mind, let's, let's keep looking here at, at Mark's introduction uh, to Jesus. Mark 1, starting at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So again, here we find the dual nature of Jesus, his humanity and his deity, and we find them sort of intermingled in these two events of, of his baptism and then his temptation in the wilderness. So let's kind of look at them one at a time here. It is baptism. We see this dual nature. And one of the ways that is shown to us is that he's from a real town. It's a real person from a real town. 
Uh, we know that he was born in Bethlehem, but they were just visiting because of the census. But he grew up in Nazareth, which is why he's referred to as Jesus the Nazarene. And if you don't know much about Nazareth, it's one of those um, unknown, out-of-the-way, backwoods kinds of towns don't really garner a whole lot of respect. When Mark mentions that he's from Nazareth, Mark's not flexing here, you know. He's not giving a whole lot of credit to Jesus by saying he's from Nazareth. What he's doing is he's humanizing Jesus. A real person, a real human from a real place. Nobody's bragging about being from Nazareth. It's like saying you're from Esther or Ninana or Apple Valley, California, in my case. Or Bodfish, California, which is where Holly Pivik is from. Bodfish is one of the funniest sounding towns I can, I can think of. Bodfish. Population 2,000. I believe there's a traffic light, Holly. Is that right? Is there eight? No. Not yet. <laughs> Bodfish. So the comment here that Jesus is from Nazareth, again, it's not building up his resume. It's not preening. It's not posturing. There's nothing special about this hometown. In fact, there's even sort of a funny exchange in the Gospel of John about this. You might remember this. Uh, it's in John 1. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Perfectly respectable town. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one uh, Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael added. Come on and let's see, said Philip. So even there in this exchange between the disciples, there's this little Nazareth. Come on, really? Nazareth? Jesus is from a real earthly town. Nothing special about the town, even though there's something special about him. We also see that he's engaged in the activities of the day. Jesus was a people person. Where the people are, Jesus is. Uh, so he goes out to the Galilean countryside here, to the Jordan River, uh, because that's where the people are going. And I don't mean to say that Jesus is just a follower, but he loves people, and where people are, that's where Jesus is. When it was festival time, he went to Jerusalem with everyone to celebrate the festivals. In fact, the arrangement of the Gospel of John follows a three-year cycle of festivals. That's how it's kind of laid out. When there was a wedding, Jesus was there, right? In John 4, the wedding in Canaan of Galilee. And he even made some goodies while he was there. When John's out at the Jordan baptizing, Jesus is there because there's a, rival, a revival going on and he wants to be a part of it. So what I mean to say is that he's just a go-with, show-up kind of guy. And it's one of those qualities that's really endearing about Jesus. He's not a recluse, right? He's not like you know, Luke Skywalker out on the Jedi Island when he's needed elsewhere. He's where the people are. I heard a boo over here. He's probably a Trek guy, Star Trek guy. Jesus is not legend. He's not just this mythical figure that fell from the sky. He's presented as a real person in real time and space. He's born of a woman who had a name, Mary. He had an earthly dad, Joe. Joe was a carpenter. He grew up in Nazareth. He went on family road trips. Uh, in one instance, he even got separated from the family at the temple. It took a couple days to notice that he was missing, right? He attended his local synagogue. 
He was baptized in the Jordan River, a river named by a person, John, who happened to be his cousin. And the scriptures don't shy away from the family connection. He had a real physical body such that he could be lowered into the water and raised out of it in the same way that years later his physical body would be lowered into the ground and by the power of God raised out of it. These details that are recorded here in the Gospels are there to present Jesus as a real person in real time and space. His humanity is on display. And while it's his humanity on display here in his baptism, there are also elements of his deity on display. As divine, we might say that his baptism was unique. It was different than the baptism of others, right? The others came out to John at the Jordan River to be baptized for what? Do you remember? Forgiveness of sins. Theirs was a baptism of repentance. It was a revival going on as God was preparing people's hearts through John and through this act of baptism for what he was going to do in Christ. So it's a little strange when you think of Jesus coming out and participating in this baptism. And it kind of causes us to say, his is definitely different because there's no indication of repentance or forgiveness of sins, and nor would we expect that of Messiah. And it might even cause you to ask the question, why was he baptized? Why did he do that? The Gospel of Matthew is actually, I think, the most helpful to that question where he says, in order to fulfill all righteousness, which doesn't mean that there was something wrong with Jesus, but rather I think what is happening here is that Jesus in this baptism is fully identifying himself with mankind and fully submitting himself to the Father for the divine errand on which God has sent him. I also think there's a bit of foreshadowing going on here again as he is lowered into the water and raised out, just as he will be lowered into the ground and raised out. And so his baptism here, I think, is about him showing himself to be one of us so that he can fully represent us. Uh, I also think there might be a, a little bit of a sort of poetic bracketing here. I'm kind of a literary nerd, and I can't help but to notice this. Uh, the beginning of his ministry, baptism, again, lowering and raising, culminates in the end of his ministry, the lowering and the raising. And I think the gospel is sort of, the gospel of Mark is sort of placed within these two bracketing events. But again, here I think his baptism is to show himself to be one of us, even though his baptism was distinctly different from the others. And that sort of contrast highlights again his divine nature something which is especially underscored as you see the fact that when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. That's quite an interesting uh, point to think about here. Um, I think we're, what we're meant to see here, again, is that there's something very different about Jesus' um, Jesus' baptism. This isn't one of forgiveness. And I think as the Holy Spirit descends upon him and sort of casts his affirmation on him, it is a way that the triune God is saying, we are affirming what's happened here. In fact, we're working in concert together. Um, and then we also see, and this is going to be sort of a write-in a write point for you here uh, because it's not in your notes. There should be a letter C, even one more sub-point. God the Father loves and affirms Jesus. Actually, it should be right back here. 
And I think this is important to hear the voice of the Father speaking with this affection and this affirmation. Because there are some for whom, let's take the verse John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. For some people, they hear that verse and they don't go, wow, that's wonderful news. They think, boy, God must be a jerk. Or they will even describe that as divine child abuse. A father sacrificed his son for knuckleheads like you and me. That doesn't cause them to like or appreciate or respect or revere God, the Father. And so here at least we see this this beautiful voice, you are my son whom I love, with you I am pleased. And I think it's important to see the love and affection that exists between the members of our triune God who are working again in concert to one another. Uh, This is one of those really important passages in the New Testament because it's one of the only places where we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all present in in one scene, so to speak. Uh, We don't don't often run into that. Very often it's just one or two members of, of the Trinity. And I want to just kind of stop and pause and reflect on that a little bit because I think that's important and I think the modern day church is really failing to be Trinitarian. And I want to expose that and put that in your mind a little bit and just try to show it to you if I can. Um, So I'm going to name a few different denominations or movements. I'm not trying to demonize them. I'm not saying they're bad. But I do want to just highlight where I think they have some distortions uh, just to kind of prove my point, so to speak. Let's take the Reformed Church, for example. The Reformed Church tends to highlight God the Father and his sovereignty and his executive planning of our salvation, right? Church plants tend to highlight the Son. They highlight Jesus, really to focus upon Jesus as the instrument of our salvation, almost to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. Charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches will focus on the Spirit to the exclusion of the Father and the Son. And there's almost an intoxication with the Spirit without recognizing the others. And I just, I just want to show that, that that's kind of those denominations or those movements' temptations. But an Orthodox church with a full grasp of the Word of God seeing God for how he has revealed himself in tripersonal ways throughout the scriptures will maintain a robust Trinitarian view. Our God is three and one. The Father does not work alone. The Spirit does not work alone. The Son does not work alone. They work in concerted effort. And we see that here. I love the way A.W. Tozer has said it. He has said, All of God does all that God does. And that's beautiful. So all of the members of the triune Godhead are at work in our salvation. It also seems to me, and I could be wrong about this, so I hold this open-handed, but it seems to me that Mark's sort of beginning of his gospel, especially the Trinitarian nature of it, almost has some echoes back to Genesis. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet. Just some of the verbiage that we see there. In Genesis, we have right in the beginning, God created. Then we hear this 
sort of plural voice, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And then we have, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Just some notes from early on in Genesis, right? And then we get to Mark and we find some similar verbiage. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And we have, this is my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Again, we have this plural voicing here, or this, this, this Trinitarian picture. And then we have the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus as a dove. I could be wrong. I may be seeing something that's not here, that is, or something here that isn't here. But I think Mark is giving these echoes back to Genesis to show that what God created, he is recreating. What was broken and distorted at the fall is being remade and redone in Jesus. And I, I think that's part of what's, what's happening here. Okay, so we've covered his humanity and his uh, deity on display in his baptism, and now we want to see it uh, in his temptation in the wilderness. Verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So again, here we see uh, his, his, in his temptations, we're, we're shown the dual nature of Christ. First of all, as human, we have to understand that he has, again, a real physical body with real vulnerability, the same way that you and I experience this. I just got back from a, a fly fishing trip uh, down to my favorite stream, which is none of your business, and uh, I had a great time. I didn't have a bite in three days. I had a great time. I had a great time. It was beautiful. Um, and I, I walked the river about five hours a day for three days. And, and at the end of that, walking the river and the uneven ground and, and the, the rocks on the bottom of the creek beds and climbing up and out of the, of the different streams, I noticed that my hips were pretty sore. And that's the new one for me. Uh, you know, the body keeps changing. And, uh, and so I've been, you know, taking the ibuprofen to heal up a little bit. Well, not to heal, just to feel better, just to feel better. Um, so I've been doing that. You know what? I submit to you that Jesus had a body like our body such that he felt sore after certain activities. There's a real physical body with real vulnerabilities. And you notice also here that he was in the wilderness and it notes with Domesticated animals? No, with wild animals. I remember the first time I was invited to go on a hunt. I was relatively new to Alaska. I'd just been here, I think, a couple of years. And a gentleman came up to me after church, and he said, hey, I've got a 32-foot Nordic tugboat down in Prince William Sound. How would you like to go out and do a little bit of halibut fishing? We could drop some shrimp pots and go on a bear hunt. And I looked at him and I was like, the answer is yes. I'll go ask my wife, but the answer is yes. That's what's going to happen. That's how this is going to go. And so we went down uh, to Valdez and uh, went out Prince William Sound. I don't even mind telling you where we went because I got my bear. We went to Galena Bay. And we went back into the bay. And it's really interesting because at high tide, it sort of fills up. There's this narrow canal that you can get into it. And then at low tide, all of the water in this bay washes out. And actually, this is called Duck Lagoon in the back part of the bay. 
And the water washes out and it leaves fish exposed in the lagoon. And then all of these bears come down from everywhere and feast. And you can sort of pick your bear. So we went in there and uh, took a little Zodiac back in and kind of saw where they were coming from. And noticed there was this one little stream with tons of fish up on the shore and lots of bear sign. And they said, okay, let's, let's position you right there. So we took the Zodiac up and they had me pop out and put me on this little bluff I've got somebody else's borrowed rifle and somebody else's borrowed clothes, my first hunt ever. And they put me on this bluff and then they leave. They get in the Zodiac and go back out to the middle to watch from a distance. <laughs> I'm a California kid. I'm from California. And I'm sitting there with someone else's rifle and someone else's hunting gear on this little bluff. And at first I'm thinking, man, those are great guys. They're like really honoring me. They want me to be successful, positioning me to get the shot. What nice guys. And then as they go a little further out, I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute here. <laughs> am I the shooter or am I bait? You know, <laughs> I was very nervous. And as every breeze would come up and I would hear a swish of grass or whatever, I, you know, I'm looking at everything and I'm just terrified. And I'm and this, having this internal conversation that goes something like this. I'm a dangerous man. <laughs> I have a rifle. The bear should be scared of me. I'm a dangerous man. <laughs> well, anyways, I, I did get my bear. That's how that story ends. But what I mean to say is, even as frightened as I was, I'm hunting off a boat with two other guys for a day, an afternoon on this bluff with a rifle. And that's how I felt. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness with the wild animals. And I'm going to say he's not carrying. That's right. I'm going to say he's not carrying. How does one feel? I like to do prayer hikes up in Denali Park. And uh, some of the times that I've done that before, before they allowed you to carry or allowed you to discharge a fire, firearm in the park, I did not carry. And there's nothing to facilitate prayer like walking among the wild animals. But for 40 days, in the wilderness, really exposed. 40 days is a long time. The mention of the animals here is not to paint a Disney moment. It's not like the squirrels and the birds and the deer come into chat and hang out. There's real exposure. What I mean to say is this. He had a real, physical, vulnerable time. He also was really tempted in the wilderness. Um... I'm a bit of a contrarian. My personality type describes me as the devil's advocate, the ultimate devil's advocate, which I think is funny for a pastor. <laughs> but that's how I approach the scripture, like, huh, how do we know that to be true? And so I, I sort of come with questions, if that makes sense. And when, it's, when we, we find this passage in Hebrews that says, he was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. Well, my contrarian nature gets going, right? And I start thinking, every way, Jesus didn't have a wife. I have a wife. <laughs> Jesus didn't have kids. I have kids. Three of them. One of them's a girl. Tempted in every way. I struggle with that. I go, oh, really? But as I've thought about it over the years, I have come to the conclusion that he was tempted in at least every way. And I would even assert that he was tempted more 
And what I mean by that is, at least in two things. One, Jesus was tempted in ways that you and I haven't been. He has survived rounds of temptation that we didn't make it to. Right? Somebody does something irritating. Let's say they're a coworker. They bother you. And you're like, okay, I can look past that one. They do it again. Listen, I've got the Holy Spirit. I can look past that too. Third time, that's it, strike three. You're going to hear from me. I'm going to tell you. But Jesus survived that round of temptation, and he went on to round 10 and 20 and 100 and 500, and he never gave in. See, so where we quit or failed early, he kept going. He has survived rounds of temptation we never even made it to. And secondly, I would say this. From the other gospel accounts, we see that some of the temptations that Satan lobbed at Jesus uh, actually appealed to his deity or to his dual nature, if you will. So that it sounded something like this. Human Jesus, you're hungry. Why don't you use your divine powers to turn those rocks into bread? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Here's the question. What if you had divine powers to satisfy your human appetites? How would you do? Not well, is my answer. I'd be eating cinnamon rolls a lot, right? (laughs) Boom, cinnamon rolls right there. And worse, and worse. Jesus was tempted in at least every way we are, and yet was without sin. Um, I think it's also a little hard to get past the first phrase of verse 12 here, where it says, the Spirit of God led Jesus out to what? To be tempted by Satan. That's kind of tough too. We think, why would you do that? We know in the book of James, it says that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, right? So no one should say that when he is tempted, that's what's going on. So we know the Spirit's not tempting him in the desert, but he takes him out to where he know he will be. And we look at that, and again, my contrarian nature says, why did you do that, Spirit? Why didn't you take him somewhere nice? You know, somewhere fly fishing, somewhere pleasant. Why the wilderness? And why for temptation? And I want to just say that I think his being tempted for 40 days and overcoming that temptation is not arbitrary, but an important theological point. It presents Jesus as one who would succeed where Israel had failed. You notice the number 40 here? I think significant. I think Jesus is presented as one who, in his 40 days of temptation, succeeds where Israel had to, be, had to languish in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure. He's presented as the man that would succeed. I was talking to my son Aiden earlier this week, and he has a class where they're studying Anselm, and he had to submit a project to someone to talk about why Jesus became man. And so he kind of laid out some of the thoughts from Anselm, and Anselm uh, acknowledged this, this sort of uh, theme, if you will, that there are all of these inversions in Scripture, where something was sort of set up one way, but then inverted in the end. And, uh, and I think this sort of plays into it here. For example, sin entered through a man, Jesus becomes a man in order to conquer sin. 
Just as the curse is born of a woman, Eve, so it's crushed by one born of a woman, Mary. Just as the creation was subjected to futility, so in Christ he initiates a new creation of restoration. Just as Israel failed to go into the promised land and languished 40 years in the wilderness, here Jesus, 40 days in the desert, shows he will be the one who is victorious. These inversions. I thought that was an interesting observation by Anselm. But not only do we see his, uh, his humanity out there in the wilderness and the temptation, we also see his deity. We see that Jesus works in concert with God the Spirit. In other words, he didn't wander out there on his own. He was led by the Spirit. And I think this, this says something to us that we should take note of because we often like to attribute only good things to God. Do you notice that? Very often somebody will tell you, oh, that was a total God thing. I want to suggest to you, we shouldn't say that anymore. Uh, if you say that to me, I'll smile at you, but inside I'm thinking, we need to work on your theology. Does God only do good things? No. no. I mean, the things that God, God does all things. And what we attribute goodness to doesn't mean it's of God, right? That's a way of just reading God through our lens of what ought to be. Everything God does ends up being good, but not every good thing can we say that was of God, if that makes any sense. It was the Spirit who led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. In other words, God may put us in a situation in life. It could be a neighbor with whom you have an altercation. It could be a coworker who is an irritation. It could be a family member that God has brought back into your life and you have to struggle with that. That's a God thing too because they're all God things, not just what we say are good things. Finally here we see that he was attended by angels. And um, I'm gonna try to avoid a long rabbit trail here. I think as evangelicals we have a really underdeveloped angelology. I'll say that. Angelology is a real thing and it's in all of our systematic theology books. Erickson, uh, Wayne Grudem, and others, but it doesn't show up in any of our practical theology. You notice that? We don't talk a lot about angels. If you talk about going to church, people will say, okay. If you talk about God, that's fine. If you mention the personal name of God and say Jesus, they're going to give you a little distance, right? If you start talking about angels, people think you're weird. You notice that? I'll be honest, that's how my thought process goes a little bit. And yet throughout the scriptures, we find the angels at work as messengers, as guardians, and as those who attend with care. Um, we're even told by the author of Hebrews that in showing hospitality to strangers, sometimes we have entertained angels unknowingly. I was driving back on the Parks Highway yesterday, and it was nasty. The conditions were terrible. I saw two accidents between Ninana and here. And as I came upon the first one, a woman who it turns out to have been an Uber driver went off the road about 30 feet into uh, deep snow, and she had two passengers with her from Japan. And <laughs> these young guys were pretty concerned. And uh, so I stopped, and Are you guys okay? And yeah. And uh, anyways, long conversation ensued. I, I won't bore you with all the details. 
But I, I said, I'm heading back to Fairbanks. Does anybody want to come with me? And the, the two young guys from Japan said, we'd like to go with you. <laughs> and so they hopped in the truck with their stuff and we started driving back. And I'd already prepared my message and I was thinking about this point. What if one of these guys is an angel? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. I could use an angelic interaction here. Who knows? First Peter tells us that God's redemptive work through Christ is so conspicuous and so entertaining that the angels in heaven long to look into these things. We're like a reality TV show that they can't turn off. Like binge-watching Netflix, right? Next episode. The angels are engaged in what our triune God is doing through Christ in our lives. Uh, we could go on and on, and I won't. But here's what I want you to see today. The dual nature of Jesus, fully human and fully divine. From this dual nature, he's qualified to serve as our Messiah, not just from the externals, but from the internal nature of who he is. As human, he's able to serve as our representative. As fully divine, he's able to satisfy the righteous standard of a holy God. His story is not one of legend or myth, but anchored in time and space, in the act of the triune God to recreate a people for himself. And I will tell you this, that calls for a response. I quit halfway through my substitute application. Jesus did not quit halfway through his application to be our substitute. He went all the way to the cross. He died for your sins and mine. And it demands a response. And that response can be as simple as what we call ABC. Acknowledging that we're a sinner. Believing that Jesus died for us. And C, confessing that he is our Savior and Lord. And I want to close the service by offering a prayer. And if you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, then I would pray that you would do so today. Because he's died for you. And he's got a great life ahead for you. So would you pray with me? God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that you provided a Savior in Jesus Christ who is fully human and fully divine and who died for me as my representative. And I confess that he is my Savior and my Lord and I want to orient my life to him. Father, thank you for the way that you draw us to yourself. Thank you for being a good God who does not leave rebels to themselves, but rescues by self-giving. Thank you that you are in all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, engaged in this process of redeeming us. We rejoice in the salvation that we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.